0: Read with me. We're going to read Ephesians 6, 1-4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Okay, that's it. Nice and pithy. Short. So, as I just said, in the book of Ephesians... What Paul is doing is he's telling the church, God has this plan. He's going to set everything under the feet and under the authority of his son. And the way he's going to do it, not ironically, but incredibly, is he's going to do it through the church. He's going to fill all in all, he says, through the church and through transformed relationships specifically. And so in Ephesians, he outlines how he's going to transform these relationships and how they're going to function now that the gospel holds sway and in the church. And he talks about marriage, and then he moves swiftly from marriage into the family. The very next verses after he's finished speaking about women and men and submission and all that, which we covered. He then moves into the family. And if families were sitting there, listening in Ephesus, having this letter read to them, expecting a long treatise on, okay, now I can finally get my house in order, then they were sadly disappointed, I think, because he offers only four lines, it's 51 words in Greek, 60 words in the ESV, and that's so, so short that, did you know, the Oscar Mayer Wiener song has 65 words? So, if we were expect, there's the, I don't want that. Is the the mobile. I don't know, that's kind of weird, I don't know. So, if you're expecting this grand, I can almost hear people, because I know today how we are as people, I know how the church is. There's people who come to me occasionally and say, you've only been married 19 years. You have the, n- the nerve to tell me how to be married. Or you've only got six kids and none of them are 20 yet. How dare you tell me how to... I, so I understand. I can imagine Ephesians listening and saying, this old bachelor has the nerve to say this is all that parenting is. Kids obey. Parents don't be jerks. That's it. Really, Paul? Is that all you have to say? And yet, yes, that's exactly all he has to say. And I wonder if we were back there, if any of us would be saying, he's got no idea. He's never had kids, he doesn't know the trouble we've seen. <laughs> and as a kid, what does he remember about being a kid? And then we move to the modern age, and we say, really, what does a 2,000-year-old book and a bachelor have to do? What can he possibly tell me about modern problems? About phones, and social media, and pornography, and fake news, and any- Well, none. you can't trust any news nowadays, it seems. So, how could this possibly have any relevance to our lives today? And yet, first understand that in the Bible, there's nothing new. Stop being, we call, I call it chronological arrogance. Sometimes we think because we are more modern, more sophisticated in certain areas, we think that we're better than the ancients. No, you're not. You're no better in any way. In fact, you're arguably not even more intelligent. You may have more knowledge, but you may not. And when you look at the Bible, for instance, The prodigal son parable tells us that renegade and rebel children were not new. It's not new to see them run away. Disengaged and poor parenting is not new. Read the Old Testament. In fact, I'm sorry, not one Old Testament father is a good father all in all, not a perfect father, except for God. And so we see that dysfunction is not new. Struggles in parenting are not new. And so when we read these short verses, Paul actually provides, I think, a simple but very rich foundation for parents and for children, and for the family dynamic. And so we're going to look at that as quickly as I can, which is, we're going to see three things. We're going to see what children should do, why they should do it, and then how parents can help. Okay? Very simple. So let's start there. What children should do. So, who is Paul speaking to, first of all? He's speaking to technon, to children. But that term technon, when it's used by Paul and throughout the New Testament, and outside of the New Testament, extra-biblical sources, refers to a few things, and it's actually quite radical that Paul's doing this. In referring to children, he is referring first to boys and girls. To address children directly, as a writer, is unknown in the ancient world. Stoics and Romans, lots of people wrote about parenting, and they wrote about children, but they would always talk to parents. You never talk to the kids. So when Paul addresses children, first he assumes that they're sitting in the worship service and hearing, which is radical. He second includes girls, and this This is boys and girls, not just girls, not just boys. And in the ancient world, girls were often left uh, sequestered, cloistered for a time, or they were covered, and they were just not as open in relating to people publicly as boys. So the fact that he's referring to this and that the girls were involved and there's this unity of the family in the church is radical. The second thing we know is that this word is applied not just to little children, but to all of us, who have been born of woman, which I think is all of us. I hope. So technon is not so much a chronological term for children as it is a relational term, that we're all children. And so clearly I think he's speaking here all at once to young kids who are under the authority of their parents entirely, but he's also speaking to us older people who are kids as well. And he's talking, and we'll see how that functions. But then he does something really interesting. What does it he wants kids to do, children to do, all of us to do with our parents? The first thing he says is obey. When he says obey, Paul, is, it's, we, can't, we have to understand why he's using this word it's not. He's using it for a purpose, because just one verse before, he tell, and a few verses before, he's talking about, well, first in chapter 5, verse 21, he says, all of you should submit to one another. So the whole church relates to one another in relationships of submission. Then he breaks it down further and says, okay, married couples, submission. Women specifically, he mentions, in in, in this relationship of submission with their husbands, and we covered that a few weeks ago. Then he turns to children. But he doesn't say, children, submit to your parents. Instead, he says, children, obey your parents. It's not an accident, because submission is everywhere else, but the relationship of children to parents is unique. Children must obey. Women, isn't it interesting, in 1662, the book of, book of prayer has the marriage ceremony, which you've all heard in movies and on the love boat, which says, women, do you promise to obey your husbands? Do you know nowhere in Scripture it tells a woman to obey her husband? It doesn't. It says submit, but doesn't say obey. And they're, they're related, those two terms, but they're not the same. Submission, and this is just me writing, so there's no quote, is could be summarized like this, it's a voluntary self-giving love often expressed as constructive care for the loved one in response to the care and love received from the other. It is the giving of all of ourselves gladly and safely to one who can be trusted to receive this submission with humility and Christ-like love. Submission, giving voluntarily of ourselves. Obedience, however, again, I don't like to beat up the Greek, but hippo-akuo, Hippokou means, uh, akuo is where we get the word acoustic from. It means to hear. So it means obeying, to listening, and responding to what you've heard. And so obedience is, I've heard and I will do. Submission carries a little bit of a different thing there. So children, first and foremost, what are we asked to do to our parents? Obey them. What they say we are to do. Listen, I know there's nuances, we'll get there. That is the base. Obey our parents. But he doesn't end there. He then, right after saying children obey, he then moves and he, said, he anchors it in this commandment from, from Exodus 20. He then, with the honor your parents. Notice, honor and obey. Are those the same word? No. But they're related. And Paul, that's why Paul brings it in. And one of the things you need to also know is Paul does this all the time. When Paul refers back to the Old Testament when he's trying to tell you how to live, when he speaks about everything from, oh boy, women in ministry to relationships and marriage to this, he then goes back to the Old Testament. And the reason he's doing that is he's saying, these commands are not simply cultural things that you can change as the culture changes, but it's rooted in the law. It's rooted in the nature of God and creation. And so he does this and he says, children, it's, you have to obey. You must obey. This is, it's not cultural. Just because today the government says children can choose here in Canada to do certain things with their lives, that doesn't mean it's right. And so he's anchoring it in that. And when he, when he says, then he says, but obey, or, or sorry, but honor your parents. And here, this word again, sorry I have to be nitpicky about the Greek, It means to honor is to value, to respect. It's not merely to obey. So here we have Paul saying, kids, you have to do what your parents say, but it's not a begrudging doing. You're not a slave. You're not there to just carry out the task. It's you're actually meant to honor your parents and to gladly do it. Now that's that's a harder thing, right? So, what does it actually mean? It means that when we're obeying our parents, we're to somehow, and I'll explain how, we'll get practical in a minute, somehow we are to value and respect them as we obey, not simply do it. And so, how do we do that? Young kids, us older kids, how do we honor our parents now? And I, I turn now to a guy, who's a, he's a pastor in Toronto named Tim Challey, some of you may know him. And he outlines pretty simple. There's six quick things, he says. This is how we can honor our parents. It's not set in stone, but these, I think these are pretty good guidelines. First one, he says, forgive them. Forgive your parents. They're not perfect. My kids may think I'm perfect. No? No, they're not. A, they know it. See, they don't. They see me every day. They know I'm not perfect. So forgive your parents. They are imperfect. And if you do not learn as a child to forgive, you will grow up to be an angry parent, an angry adult. And if Christ could forgive on the cross, so do you and I, and can we, when we extend Christ's grace to our parents. So we need to realize that. And I think all of us, as we get older, I, when I realize that my parents were my age, when I was a certain age, and I think, man, they were just kids. My parents were just kids, raising kids. And, I, and here I was, being, I'm being so hard on them at times. Forgive your parents. So that's one. Second, speak well of them. Speaking well, though, I mean here, don't slander your parents in public or in private. Don't air dirty laundry. Now, I'm not saying don't uh, report abuse. That's not what we're saying. I'm saying when you're in public and when you're with your people, you don't start saying things like, yeah, I know you think my dad's great because he's the pastor, but you know he leaves his underwear everywhere, <laughs> which is not true. But, but, there, but there are things, and we, can't, we shouldn't be looking to slander our parents. Right the opposite, we should be honoring them constantly, And if you're not sure that this is a biblical mandate, consider this. In the Old Testament, the penalty for slandering your your parents was the same penalty for abusing them physically, and that was death. So God takes seriously how we speak of our parents. So you honor your parents when you speak well of them, in public and in private. Related to that, but a little different, is this, that you esteem them publicly and privately. Now this is that desire that all of us parents have, that one day our kids will say, Dad, Mom, everything I learned was because of you guys. Thank you for that. I appreciate that you wouldn't let me give up doing this because I'm so happy that you, you were committed to my nurture, to my care. That appreciation, esteem your parents. Look for opportunities to esteem them whenever you can. Fourth, seek their wisdom. In the Bible, youth and folly are hand in hand. I'm sorry, as i said this before, you always look back on your life and say, if only I knew 10 years ago what I knew now. Which means that right now you're an idiot. Because the 10 years from now, your you is going to say I was an idiot. So let's be humble and accept that. And let's honor our parents by seeking their wisdom on life decisions. Even if you don't heed their decision. Their, their opinions, you may say no thank you. But when you go to them, you honor them by seeking their wisdom. So that's another. Fifth, support them. This one is maybe not what you think. In Psalm 71, verse 9, David laments and cries out to God that he doesn't want to be left alone when he's old. And I know in our culture, and I mean, Jackie sees Africa, and we know about Asian and other cultures where it's a different thing. When people are old here in the West, we cart them off to a home at times. Now, sometimes that's for their need, right? Physically and for health, we need that, they need that care. But that isn't an excuse to neglect them. And People, are, are, they're our parents. They need our love, our support. And we honor them by telling them before that stage comes, we're never going to abandon you. No matter what happens, we're always going to be there. Even if we're separated physically for a time, we'll be there when it's important, we'll be there to call, we'll be there for conversations, we'll never abandon you. We honor our parents then. And now lastly, but related to that one, is provide for them. And this is more financial. In, in uh, is it Second Timothy? 1 Timothy 5, Paul says that when we don't provide financially for our families, we, are, we show that we hate them, and we're worse. No, that's the sorry, this one, not hate, it's Proverbs. Um, he says we're worse than non-believers when we don't do that. And so, we, and here again, Eastern cultures have much to show us. In fact, John Stott says that East, uh, African and Asian cultures stand, are a standing rebuke to the West in this matter, because we don't support our families nearly as well. In fact, Sarah and I live next door to people in Welland who was a multi-generational Muslim family, wonderful family, and they've got grandparents, and I actually don't know how many were living there. Um, and there's times where I would think, boy, how could they do that? I would, like, somebody be murdered in our family if we did that. And there's a slight disdain in that statement that I can't believe that anybody would actually want to be around their family. Like, there's, an era, there's, there's something in me that has been bred being in a Western guy to think that I shouldn't provide in that way. And yet, we are. And we honor our parents in those ways. So that's just some, some practical ideas there. So that's what we're told to do, obey and honor our parents. Now, why should we do it? Because we're given motivation here. Firstly, and very straightforwardly, Paul says, because it's right. <laughs> now, in one regard... He agrees here, and the world agrees. Because every culture, up until arguably in the last decade or so, every culture in human history, be it Greek, Stoic, doesn't matter where you are in the world, has agreed that requisite to an orderly society was children obeying their parents. That this is natural. It's, a, it's right. It's, in fact, there's Stoic writers, ancient uh, Roman Stoics, who write things and say, children obeying their parents is self-evident. It's just... Knowledge is just common sense. There's, you can't debate it. It's just, we all know it. But Paul goes even further. And he says it's not just self-evident, but it's right because God says. And here again, he anchors it in that, that commandment when he says, honor your mother and your father. Now, Paul goes even further in Romans and in Timothy as well when he says, you know when he lists the, this is what the end times will look like. You know, when things really are starting to go spiraling downhill, this is what the world's going to look like. In both cases, he says children will stop obeying their parents. And so the obedience of a child to a parent is connected biblically to the disintegration and decay of human existence. So it's a sign. And then there's two things he says as far as motivation. When he quotes that Old Testament, that, that commandment in Exodus 20, verse 12, there's two things he says very clearly. We, the reason we should honor and obey our parents is because it honors God and it benefits us. Let me go through those quickly. First, if you know anything about the Jews, um, then you'd know this. And you don't find this anywhere in Scripture, really, but you find it all through Jewish tradition from earliest time to the present. When you take the Ten Commandments and you write them down, so I'll put them up on the screen here. This is, well, it's short form. Okay? The Jews assumed that they were written on two tablets. Okay? And the Bible speaks about tablets. doesn't necessarily say two, I don't believe anywhere. But there's two tablets. And the Jews say there was five on each. And it goes even further. The Jews say, no, no, not just were there five on each, but they were arranged intentionally like this. That the first five, all related to how we speak and interact with God. And the last five are how we interact with one another. But if we do that, notice that honoring our family, our mother and father, lies under our relationship to God. And so Israel has historically thought, that there's a connection between honoring God and honoring your parents. And they don't just do that because, well, it would be weird to have four on one and six on the other. That's not why they do it. They do it because throughout Scripture, God makes this connection. In Leviticus 19.2, this famous line where God says, as you've all heard, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Very next words. Every one of you shall revere his mother and father. See what he's doing? All through Scripture, God says, how you honor your parents is how you honor me. And that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because your parents are God to you. Not literally, of course, please understand. But who provides for you, teaches you, protects you, cares for you, loves you? If you cannot honor the people you can see, remember 1 John, if you can't love your brother who you do see, how do you say you love the, the God you don't see? And God, excuse me, and so... This obedience that you and I are to have towards our parents is not rooted in our fear of our parents, but in our reverence to God. If we love God, we will obey, and because we want to please our God, we obey our parents. Quite logical, but that, that's a very simple way of what the Jews are saying here. So, one, it's right because it honors God. But the second thing is, he throws in this promise, Paul, said, which is it'll go well with you. Now, understand, when Paul says this, and when Proverbs speaks very optimistically about how tit for tat, cause and effect. If you do this, this, your life will be good. Understand that wisdom, if you took my Old Testament class, you'd know this. The wisdom literature was meant to be read as a whole. Proverbs optimism is meant to be balanced with the cynicism of Ecclesiastes and of the Psalms occasionally and of Job, so that we see that the things that come out in Proverbs are not promises but probabilities. That if, if you want to have a good life, Your chances are greatly increased if you follow God's law. That doesn't mean you're going to have a great life. Okay? It's very simple. Many people have been obedient. In fact, Jesus was perfectly obedient, and his life wasn't great. But he says, if children, if you want to live long in the land, honor your parents. And what he is getting at here, and remember, he's speaking not just to individuals in the commandment, but he's speaking to the people of Israel. If the nation is to live well, this foundation must be there. It must be. And the reason is very simple. Because if you do not respect your parents, I assure you, you do not respect God. And not only that, I as a guy who has worked corporate and in church can see generationally that people who are raised to not and don't respect their parents, even if it's no fault, even if their parents deserved disdain. Some parents are bad. Some parents are abusive. And those children who grow up despising their parents, I assure you, despise authority, despise their boss, despise a lot of things. And so, God is right. Surprise, surprise. That if we don't honor our parents, it'll be a harder life for us. Now, let's talk about the limits of obedience, because I know that's always a question I get asked. Well, what's the limit? Well, here I know. I, as a 40-year-old man, my parents can't tell me any longer when to go to bed or what to eat for dinner. I wish they would. But they can't. So, obviously, obedience changes over time. However, here's an interesting fact. In the Roman world, the Roman world that never changed. You never reached the age of majority. If you were an old man, but your dad was a bit older, if he told you to jump, you said, how high? You never got out under the thumb of your father. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But in, the, in our world here, Paul beautifully provides the guidelines for us about what it means to obey and to honor. And he says it when he says, in the Lord. Children, obey your parents. In the Lord and then we are as parents are to instruct in the Lord so we are expected to obey people and parents in everything unless it contradicts our obedience to God now let me use practical examples I heard from I think it was John Stott but I don't remember he said let's use two very practical examples imagine you're a brand new Christian you become a Christian as a teenager you're still living at home the age of majority in our country is what 18 or whatever it is 16 18 whatever and your parents forbid it and say, do not get baptized, you then could say, okay, I won't get baptized, because baptism isn't necessary for salvation, right? Sorry if there's any denominations that disagree. But it's not necessary for salvation. So we can obey our parents, and then once we reach the age of a majority, be baptized. However, if the parents say, do not worship this biblical God, we then must disobey. And that is because we think about it in the Lord. That is the parameters. Parents are to be obeyed so long as they are in the Lord. And you see now why Paul starts with the marriage and he says, your job is to make each other radiant in the marriage, including the children, dads. So that as long as that is our goal, children obey. You may not like the discipline, you must obey it. As long as that is there in the Lord. And this is part of, how, of the limits. We can't say too much more because I know I'll go longer. So what we're asked to, what children are asked to do is obey and honor. Why they should do it is because it honors God, benefits them. Now, how do we make this happen as parents? And Paul uses this last verse for that. Let me say again this thing: the best opportunity we have to have children who will honor God, not a perfect system, of course, is to do what Paul says. That doesn't mean it's gonna happen. I assure you, Jesus is the perfect, and God is the perfect father, and he has rotten children. Okay? So be relieved, parents, that you might do everything right on paper and your kids still may walk away from God. So be encouraged in that, first of all. But Paul says this is what you ought to do. If you want to raise a family that is more likely to follow God and to honor God and to obey you, this is what you do. Now, he refers to fathers, but understand, because he's brought in mothers and fathers in this commandment, he's speaking to parents, not just dads. But parents, you know, Paul's pretty heavy on dads. In Scripture, dads have a certain authority. We are held accountable for the spiritual formation of our families. But look at the counter—how countercultural it was! It's not just today; all through history and forever, Christian parents will always buck the system. So, an ancient, uh, well, he's an old scholar named William Barclay. He's passed away. Said this about Roman dads: A Roman father had absolute power over his family. He could sell them as slaves. He could make them work in his fields, even in chains. He could take the law into his own hands, for the law was in his own hands, and punish as he liked. He could even inflict the death penalty on his child. That's the Roman dad. Now you have Christians who come along and say, no, no, the model for dads is not this cultural model, but God the Father is our model in the Lord. This is our model from now on. And this model is so radical that it caused us to look stupid then, and it will cause us to look stupid now at times. And again, it's that focus on making, if God gives up his whole life to make us radiant, then that again remains our our, our task in a family, is to do that. So how are we going to do it? Paul says again, very simply, two things. Well, two things, but they're kind of loaded. First one is don't provoke your children to anger. So this is really, I'll explain it, but I think it's pretty straightforward, I think, but let's see. We're not to frustrate our kids with unreasonable, or harsh demands, inconsistent demands, unfair rules, constant critique or humiliation. Um, We have to not be using that tactic. That's the way the world does it, right? We use shame oftentimes. In fact, we do it very subtly. When a child does something we know he knows better than to do, we say, you know better than that. See what we're doing? We're not only shaming them a little, but we're also appealing to their pride. I am better than that. And we try to use pride to raise our children, which is a subtle mistake. So we don't provoke our children in this way. We have to be sensitive to the fact, who remembers being a teenager? Uh, it's, it's fading in the rearview mirror quickly, but, but I remember, and I remember that I found it very difficult to like my parents. I just did. I didn't like them. I did not, we didn't agree on anything. It was very hard. And I have to remember that as my kids grow up as wonderful as I am, <laughs> they are not going to necessarily love to, to listen to me and be around all the time. And I need to remember how hard it is to obey in that moment. I need to recall that because it's true. I need to also realize this, that as I said earlier, angry adults were often raised in an unsympathetic home. I see it now. And it's much easier, I think I may have said this to you before, it's easier to build children than to repair men. Much easier. By the time the men come into my office with the issues of authority and pornography, To unwind that ball is very difficult. Let's take our roles, parents, seriously. Let's not hammer them. See, this is that sin again. Remember what he said about man? Man will rule over you. We want to use our authority to dominate our kids. See, isn't that a great parenting tactic? The kids don't listen to reason. You just threaten them. That's easy, right? Just threaten them. If you you saw earlier, I was having trouble with my four-year-old here quite a bit. I could have just term said... I'm going to take you outside, and spank your bottom, if you don't behave. I could have. But I had to remember, man, it must be difficult for a four-year-old to sit still. It's got to be. And now I have an opportunity to either build him up and show him how to behave properly, or I can just punish him and turn him off of church slowly, bit by bit. And these decisions we have to make bit by bit by bit. So let's not provoke our children. Remember how patient God is with you. Second thing he says, which is more complicated, I think, He says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Okay, three quick things I'll try to be. When he says bring them up, it's ektrepho in Greek. Sorry we're using a lot of Greek, but these are important words. Ektrepho means to nourish. So, we have to think about nourishing. If I go to my doctor and they say, what's your diet like, Carl? I'm like, I had a salad like two months ago. He'd say, well, it's not the most nourishing. See, because nourishment is a day-by-day grind constant feeding. It's a diet. It's not the one time. And so when we are to bring up our children, we have to realize that a rotten, menacing toddler may become the most wonderful preteen or teen. They may. Or vice versa. The beautiful toddler, you think, oh, no two terrible twos. I'm the best parent ever. Then they become 12 or 13. And we have to remember that when we nourish our kids, it's the long haul. It takes time and we're going to see seasons just as they will with us. And the best chance we have to raise our kids who will honor us and God is if we nourish them through discipline and instruction. That's what Paul says. Now, again, not perfect, but this is, the, the, the reference, this is what he gives us. So first, discipline. Regardless of where you stand on issues like spanking and so on, this is very simple. It's a truth for all time. Children require unpleasant deterrence for disobedience. Whatever it is, I don't care if it's a timeout, if it's taking away privileges, whatever it is, children require it. You know why? Because you and I require it. There is a deterrent, there's discipline required, but you need to know that that word again, paideia, in, for, for discipline, means correct, uh, teaching, training with an emphasis on correction. Meaning, you're training them with the intent to make them right and better, to correct them, not to hurt them and punitively punish so discipline always has an eye on how do you make this person better, more radiant if you want to use that language as Paul uses about marriage. So that's an important thing there about discipline. But let's go, in, let's go further. When we talk about things like, again, I'm not suggesting either way, but spanking is a reality. Regardless of how you, what you do, here, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great Welsh preacher, has this. this. When you're disciplining a child, you should have first controlled yourself What right have you to say to your child that he needs discipline when you obviously need it yourself? Self-control, the control of temper, is an essential prerequisite uh, in in the control of others. You must be self-controlled. The purpose when my kids are supposed to be in bed and I've had a long day and they keep waking up every 20 minutes and my day gets longer and longer and less time for myself, the tendency is to say, Get to bed! Don't you know how long a day I've had? But when I do that, I am showing that I'm not interested in their correction. I'm interested in my peace. I have to remember, okay, what do I do? How do I train up this child to know that they have to obey, stay in bed, but also know that there may be a reason to come out of bed sometimes? How do I do that? So it's very difficult. but We have to do it. And one thing you cannot do is not discipline your children. Again, we're not talking here physicality. We all know Proverbs 13:24, which famously says, "Whoever spares the rod hates his child," right? Um, but he he who loves him is diligent to discipline. We're not talking about physicality, but what we are saying is this: If you do not discipline your children, you hate them. What is he, What's what's the writer getting at? What is what is uh, well Solomon saying there? People who children who are not disciplined become people who have no restraint, no wisdom no discernment, and no discipline themselves. In which case, you are beggaring your children and and damning them, basically, to a life of of misery. It's going to be a hard life, I assure you, as a man who has worked and fired many people. When you fire people, it's usually because they have, it's these things, there's no restraint, there's no wisdom, there's no discipline. And you're putting your child in a spot of having a miserable life, which is why the Proverbs writer says, you must hate your child if you don't discipline them. Because that's what you do with strangers you don't like. When I'm in a mall, I'm not going to discipline your kids. You know why? I don't love them. I don't. They're not in the same way. But when my child disobeys, I do. We must discipline our children. So, then, of course, in the Lord, right? There's always that balance. Then instruction. Here's another wonderful thing. What is the purpose of education? I'm a guy with many degrees, many of you do. What's the point of education? to create worshippers. All of it. I'm going to say that very clearly. I don't care how many degrees you have. I don't care how much you help in the cure of cancer and of world hunger. If your education does not lead you to worship God, it has been useless to you. Because ultimately, you will die in your sins and there will be an eternal... Your life will fade. The good that you have done will fade. If our education does not raise children or try to raise children to worship the living God, we have failed. And then parenting, then, is the same task of raising children who are most likely to worship God. It's important that we put kids in things like, oh, I don't know, uh, skating lessons, horseback riding, whatever, swimming lessons. These things are important. But they are secondary to putting them before God. Secondary. And I know that may sound odd, but it's not. This is clearly all through Scripture. And not only this, you're not raising millionaires. You're not raising doctors. You're not raising people to be good, reputable citizens. You're raising them to worship Christ. And that is difficult in this age. It's difficult in every age. certainly is today. And the way we do it, again, that Greek word there, nuthesia, is this informal and formal education. Yes, there's formal education. There's times where you sit with your kids, and you teach Scripture, and you talk about it. And they sit here and listen. And the best thing you can actually do is bring your kids to a church that preaches the Bible and the Gospel. And go to that church. This one, preferably but but, but a church that preaches the gospel, first and foremost. And in Deuteronomy, it makes clear what this breadth of education is. You shall teach them diligently to your children. This is the law. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates instruction and teaching kids to worship is done all the time and parents who are aware of that are always looking for opportunities what did you read today what did you see today look at that guy on the street look at that billboard and is always looking for ways to connect them to how God is at work so let me do say this as well parents we teach our kids most by honoring God in our own lives with our time with our relationship with our spouses I often encourage men to be highly affectionate with their wives. I'm not talking weird. I'm just, But love your wives. Hug them. Kiss them. Tell them you love them in the presence of your kids. Because they need to see that. Be found reading your Bible and praying in the midst of your children. When they're here with you in worship, make little Ezra stand up with you if he's behaving and say, we stand at worship. And dads, they need to see, dads, I'm, I'm a guy, so I have to speak to men mostly. They need to see dads are okay worshiping, crying, maybe, being passionate. They should. They need to see it. That is the model we must give. So children, obey because you've been accepted before you obey. This should not be controversial. All through Scripture, we're told that you are accepted before you obey. Before God speaks in the commandments, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Therefore, you shall have no other gods but me. See what he's done? I've saved you. And because I've saved you, now go obey. Not obey and then I'll save you. Children, you've been saved. If you're in a family of Christians, you're being treated as a Christian. You have to make your own faith, don't get me wrong. You have to acknowledge that and come to Christ. But you have the opportunity here. You've been accepted before you obey. So obey your parents. Parents, raise worshipers because you're in love with the crucified Jesus who died for you. If you're in love with something other than Jesus, the kids will know. Love Christ. Now, how can we do this? I'll I'll really close here. Another thing the Jews say, which... Actually, it's not the Jews. It's in Exodus. Did I put Exodus up there? I didn't. In Exodus 32, verse 15, something miraculous happens. Moses comes down, he's holding the tablets. And it says that the commandments are written on the front and the back. What's that about? I remember thinking, what is that? I've never heard it's not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. So I start looking to see, what do the Jews make of this? And the Jews have historically, and the Christians now too, have adopted this and said, it's because Moses, while he's teaching the commandments, needs to know that he is facing them as well. So that as he's telling the nation, do these things, he is also under the demand of the law. But of course, when we teach our children this, you begin to realize how much of a sinner you are. And kids, the same thing. As you're trying to obey, you realize how poorly you obey. It's a reminder to Israel, just like Paul says in Galatians, that the law came as a tutor to show us our need for a savior. And as we look at these commandments and realize, listen, I don't know about you, but I came away from that list of honoring our parents, realizing I did not honor my parents as well as I should have. And both, both my parents are gone now. They both passed on. I have not honored my parents the way I should have. If that's the case, then we're brought to our knees to say, we can't be these people. We can't be. It demands that we say we need a savior. And so the only way I can be the parent described here by Paul in these four short verses is if I realize that I am humble enough staring at the law to know I have failed and will fail constantly. But that there is one who has obeyed for me. But I'll also be bold in teaching it because I know that these are God's words and not mine. And so this will give me the power when I'm with my kids to address their behavior rather than ignore it, which is a lot easier, isn't it? Kids are fighting again over Lego. Again, it's so much easier to say, "Let them sort it out." I assure you, much easier. But I need to remember that if that's what God did with me, let Him try to sort Himself out. I would be lost. So the only way to be this sort of a parent is if you are in love with the with the crucified Lord. The only way. If you just try to be a better parent and say, "I don't need Jesus, but I, I, I'm going to try to do these good things," okay, that'll work for a few days, and you'll fail. You can't do it on your own. If you could, he wouldn't have had to come to die for you. Let's pray.